Everything costs something, no The cost of opportunities is always good to know But if you know that, then you're good to go Yeah Good morning, Milwaukee. Suzanne Powers here, Wisconsin's number one boutique broker. I have the rare opportunity to be on the Opportunity Cost podcast as the host. I'm in the hot seat today with Bo Belmer. He is our normal podcast host here for the Opportunity Costs. In a rare turn of events, I'm interviewing the podcaster, a terrific loan officer, and his remarkable story. Bo, thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks for coming on. I'm not used to being um, on this side of the table. It's a rare turn of events. I'm, I'm so honored and thrilled to have the opportunity to actually interview you. Um, I was so impressed with you when we met, and I thought for our audience, it would be a good idea if you shared the story of how us, two very unlikely people to meet, actually met and had lunch together. Sure, yeah. The uh, The short answer is I tricked Suzanne uh, in, in a roundabout way. Um, so I have been working on growing our loan origination business, and I was at an event, um, a YPN event, where they had one of those opportunities to – well, first of all, it was, it was a donation, but as part of the donation, you could guess how many items were in a certain amount of jars, and if you were the closest to guessing that, you would win lunch – with the person associated with that jar. Well, Suzanne's name was actually the only name that I recognized on those jars, and so I was like, yeah, I'll go for it. Um, So for people who don't know at home, there is basically a math problem you can do to figure these things out generally, Um, and it's usually counting height width, multiplying it by pi. If it's a round object, it depends on the object or the shape of the jar that the objects are in. This one happened to be a cylinder, so I knew the math problem. And got apparently pretty close to dead on, which how many were in there, which I'm very proud of. Um, but the, from my understanding, and you can let me know if this is wrong, the initial intention was for that to be another realtor who would be kind of picking your brain about the real estate business more directly. And so when I had won it and the YPN team got in touch with Suzanne's team, I would imagine they were under the impression that it was going to be a realtor, totally understandable. Um, and it ended up being me as an LO, which honestly, for some realtors, is not the most ideal meeting because, you know, it's, uh, well, we'll cut to the chase. I mean, we want business from realtors, of course. So it's, it's a little bit different as, as opposed to maybe more of a guidance on how to do the business. It's more of a, hey, let me talk to you about my business and learn about yours. But it's kind of more of a business meeting. Well, the reason I say I tricked her is because <laughs> I, I just don't know that you would have had a reason to meet with me any other way, to be totally honest. Yeah, I probably... It's okay, you wouldn't. I I probably wouldn't have. Yeah, and that's understandable. I would not have expected it. But you paid to have lunch with me. Yeah, I did, yeah. I was thoroughly impressed with. I'm like, wow, somebody actually wants to pay to have lunch. I did, yeah. No, it was... uh, Well, and I I had heard the name and did some research on the team, and I was like, this is a wealth of knowledge. I really want to talk to her. Um, And so, yeah, it... It kind of happened in a roundabout way, but uh, I'm really glad that it did. So thank you again for coming out. Even just that first meeting, I feel like I had a million takeaways. And so I'm excited to uh, kind of try to be a sponge and collect information further. So for our audience who doesn't know out there, an LO is a loan loan officer officer. or loan originator. Yes. So do you want me to describe kind of what I do exactly? Um, yeah, that would be very helpful, I think, for the okay. audience. And then I want you to share with them, Bo has the most compelling story. That's why I <laughs> felt like I had to be the interviewer. But yes, tell them a little bit about your job, and then sure. let's get into your really compelling story. Okay, thank you. Um, so the short version of what I do is anybody who's looking to purchase a home or refinance their current financing on their home, the traditional way of doing things used to be walking into a bank or a credit union locally and taking whatever they were willing to offer you there on that specific day. There are still people who do that, but in my opinion, they are really not getting the best possible service and experience and also the best opportunity for the best financing that they can get. So what I do is I privately collect their financial information. It's all the same information that they would give to a bank or credit union. Um, and I am licensed to accept it. So it's not like I'm a, you know, unregulated random person on the street saying, hey, give me your bank information. Um, what I do with that information, though, is one, I talk to them about what their goals are. 
then I figure out how can we achieve their goals, but not just achieve their goals, how can we do it in the most effective and efficient way from a cost perspective? I don't just want to get people financing. I want them to have the best available financing. And so with that whole package that I collect from them, once they receive an accepted offer on a new home or they decide they do want to refinance their existing home, I can find the lender anywhere in the nation who will give them the best financing, not just give them financing. And so now they have access to dozens, if not hundreds, in a lot of cases, of other lenders that they wouldn't be able to reach by walking down the street and going into their local bank or credit union. On top of that, I'm available when they need me to be. Uh, you know, Unfortunately, banks are only open 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. My phone will ring 24-7, and I will be there to pick it up. And if I'm not there to pick it up, there'll be a good reason, and I'll get back to you as quickly as possible. So it just becomes a more white-glove experience for people, and it's especially great for people who have more complicated financial situations. Like if you're a business owner, if you maybe already own multiple properties and putting together your package of what your finances look like and what you want them to look like is going to be more involved. You want someone who's right there who, one, understands what's happening and what you're trying to do, and two, is available when you need them to be to to make those things happen. Um, so that was kind of the broad overview of, of what we do. So are you telling me, as a loan officer, you're picking up your phone on the weekends and evenings oh, outside yeah. of regular nine to five hours? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so I've you're done servicing these clients whenever they need to be serviced. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, that's that's one of the it's the pros and cons of this job. And being a realtor is similar. Where do I have established hours every single day? No, but. I keep my. I want to be busy every single day, and I will be available when I need to be. And and it's um, ends up being a huge win for the buyers or the refinancers because a lot of people, especially, well, first of all, a lot of people have their own jobs, so they're not sitting there thinking about my their mortgage when they're working their own job. So I'm going to be available for them when they're not doing those things, so it's convenient for them. Um, or if they have multiple jobs or multiple businesses, sometimes you need to fill those cracks of time to be very efficient and effective. I want them to use their time effectively when it works for them, you know, and I'll be there for it. That's fabulous. That's great. Thank you. Most loan officers, it's hard to get a hold of them. It's really hard to get a hold of the banks. Yeah. So you're offering a level of service that's superior to maybe what the consumer could find somewhere else. Yeah, that I know for a fact I can offer a better service. I also always target to offer better product, meaning better financing as well. That is, of course, dependent on many factors in any transaction. Um, but yeah, absolutely. That's kind of uh, one of the main you know, points that I try to make is they're getting white glove service and they're not paying extra for it because the fees associated with working with me are in line or better than the fees that they will pay at a bank or credit union. Fabulous. Um, I think that's one of the things that really impressed me about you. So let's get into your background. Sure. I specialize in luxury. My clients are very interested in my background. And I think our audience would be very much interested in your background, Bo, because sure. I was blown away. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who Bo Belmer is? So I, I grew up in Waukesha, um, and my family has been in Waukesha for three or four generations now. I actually went to where I went to middle school is where my grandmother went to high school. So we've been around for a while. Um, I always had aspirations of kind of branching out and just experiencing something different. Not that there's a problem with Waukesha. I actually love this area. That's why I'm back here. Right. Um, and the other thing I want to just say, too, before I really dive into this, is this whole story was kind of... I want to try to tell people something that I want them to get out of it before I tell it. And one thing I really want them to get out of it is you. it is so in your favor to always have very lofty goals and to take any steps you need to and small steps you need to to try to achieve those things. That being said, if those goals change along the way, that is okay. You can have a lofty goal and swap it out for a new lofty goal that has nothing to do with the first one, and it doesn't make you a failure at the first thing you wanted to do just because you changed your mind. People are allowed to change their minds, and I think this happens to 
people frequently who think they have their mind really dead set on something and maybe it's an awesome thing that they want to achieve, but then when they realize maybe I don't want that anymore, I want something different, they feel like a failure or afraid to kind of refocus and say, never mind, I want to do this other this other thing and I can still do that successfully. And so my story's taken a lot of weird twists and turns, some of them by my own choice, some of them not by my own choice, and I'll, I'll get into that. So I grew up in Waukesha. Um, my... A big part of my childhood was highlighted by sports, which is super common in this area. It's super common, I think, just across the country. Particularly for me, it was the sport of lacrosse, which was not a a big thing in this area. My family, my mother actually founded the Waukesha lacrosse program, um, and that has now evolved into many other schools having teams, and, and there's been a lot of growth there. Well, basically up until I was... Um, in the middle of my high school years, I was, it's not that I wasn't a good student. I was fine, but I wasn't purposely being a good student. I was doing what I needed to, and it was fine, but I I didn't have this mental focus on, I need to be as good at school as I possibly can, because this will take me anywhere I want to in life. I was really focused on sports. Well, about halfway through my high school education, I realized, oh, there's, there's, there's something to this school thing. Turns out it's really valuable. <laughs> my teachers are not wrong. My parents are not wrong. And that really started clicking for me when I was trying to get recruited to play lacrosse in college. And the first question out of every coach's mouth were, what are your grades like? And so I really flipped on a dime and I went from a 3.2 type of student to a 4.0 type of student. And in fact, above that for many semesters. Um, I get to my senior year of high school. I was, you know, on cloud nine academically and also athletically. And I really wanted to be the first kid from our area who went to public school all four years of high school here and got to to go on and play lacrosse at the division one level in college. Um, I had an opportunity through a school called Mount St. Mary's University, which is based in Emmitsburg, Maryland. But part of that deal was that instead of going there directly my freshman year, I would go to a junior college in Maryland, which is uh, like a community college here, and play for their team, which was kind of like a sister program to the Division I school I wanted to go to. Well, I was so dead set that I wanted to be this Division I lacrosse player, so it's the most important thing to me. So I said, fine. I, Despite having what I believe to be great grades and good test scores and all that stuff, I picked, packed up at 18, moved to just outside Baltimore, Maryland, and started attending effectively a community college there which that in itself was puzzling for a lot of people. A lot of people couldn't figure out why, why would you choose to do this? Um, and even myself, when I got there, was left with questions sometimes. The, the other people who were there to play lacrosse were some of the best athletes I've ever met in my life. Nine out of ten of them were there because they had to be. They either could not pass school, they had legal troubles, they had substance abuse issues very early on in life, and so they had no choice but to be there, and they were using it as kind of a second chance almost, where for me, I was looking at it as, I want to try to springboard myself into college, into this athletic career, all of these things. So I spent that year almost like in the library the entire time. But we knew that if I want to achieve these great things that I want to achieve, there has to be sacrifice. There has to be opportunity costs or something I'm giving up for what I'm getting. Well, what I was giving up at that time was the traditional college experience that my friends who maybe went to Madison, Marquette, wherever were getting because I wanted something different. And so that whole year I – I was either in the library or on the lacrosse field, or I was at our local McDonald's, which is about 20 minutes away. And the reason I say that is because our libraries at the junior college, they don't have full staff like you do at a university. They were only open until about 9 or 10 p.m. every night. I would sit at the same McDonald's from about 10 p.m. till whenever my work was done, probably three to five nights a week, um, and they had free Wi-Fi. And I lived in this apartment complex with people who were – let's just say making life choices that I was not making at that time. And so I ended up doing the bulk of my studying at a local McDonald's. Um, And it got to the point where I would go in and buy something every time so they wouldn't kick me out. And then it got to the point where they just left me alone. And I felt bad because I didn't always spend money, but I had to do it. There was no other way to get the work done. So towards the end of that year, I decided I didn't want to go to Mount St. Mary's University anymore. There was nothing wrong with them, but I wanted to go somewhere that I thought was maybe another level academically that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And so at that point, I decided I wanted to try to go to Cornell University. 
Um, as part of that, I actually moved back home to Waukesha and went to University of Wisconsin-Waukesha for that following fall semester. During that time, it was probably four to six weeks after I returned to Wisconsin after being in Maryland for this year, um, I started getting very sick. And I knew something was wrong, very wrong. And so that obviously triggered myself and my family to bring me in to get medical care and to figure out what was going on. Um, it took about probably eight or so weeks to diagnose me, but I ended up getting diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, which is effectively a sister disease to Crohn's disease. Um, they're, they're the same disease. Crohn's is throughout your whole digestive tract. Colitis right. is localized to your colon. Um, there is no official way to diagnose really one or the other. So you kind of it depends on your symptoms, whether a doctor will claim that you have colitis or Crohn's. Well, I found out I had ulcerative colitis. I remember for me at this time, the biggest thing that was the, – the, the hardest part of that was hearing that this is forever. Like this is not something that just goes away. This is something that you will deal with forever, and your outlook is dependent on how your body reacts to medications or your ability to get surgery if need be. Um just so people know what colitis is, that means that you're getting ulcerations in your large intestine, which is also called your colon. Um, people, a lot of people have heard of stomach ulcers. It's the same thing. It's just localized in your colon. Well, because of that, your body has internal bleeding and you end up um, basically when you can't go to the bathroom normally, it really disrupts your life. I don't know how oh, else yeah. to put it. That's like no. the easiest way to put it. And um, for people who are going through flares, they might have to use the bathroom anywhere from 10 to 20 times a day, and that's not an exaggeration. And so I had experienced that for about eight or nine weeks. Fortunately for me, I was able to get it under control with medications. And so almost immediately after I got it under control with medication was when I was back at UW-Waukesha. A, a break, kind of a lucky sort of break, or lucky is where preparation meets opportunity, right? That's correct. So yep. a lucky break due to that preparation opportunity came um, towards the end of that year when during that time, I did the whole application process, interview process, had to get into Cornell on my own. They don't take um, athletic considerations in the transfer process. That wasn't really a thing. And I had been in touch with the coaching staff. They basically said, oddly enough, the position that you play, there is a spot that we're trying to fill. If you can get in on your own, you can fill it. Well, in October of this would have been 2014. I get the call that I got accepted into the university. I was actually in class when I got the call, and I remember seeing the um, Ithaca number pop up, and I, like, left all my stuff and just sprinted sure. and, like, took the call. <laughs> and I don't even think I went back. I think I just, like, stayed out for a while. And um, What a profound uh, thing to have happen at such a young age. Yeah, I was 19 you know, at the time. That that health scares are a big turning point for a lot of people in their lives. And yeah. it all depends. You know, you can look inward and feel bad about it, or you can actually live life more fully. And it yeah. sounds like you grasped the reins of life and decided, hey— I, I'm I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to totally. do— Totally. I, so I was, people I was looking at it as— there's, there's With any health issue, there's two ways of looking at it. You can look at what are the things I can no longer do, or you can look at how right. can I do the things I still want to do. And that was always the approach I took was, okay, I still want to do these things. It's going to be a different process or different – there's going to be differences in how I'm going to be able to accomplish that now, but it doesn't mean I can't accomplish it. And so I started doing Googling who is that all sort of clay? How many, how many things <laughs> people are out there? Um, a good Or Crohn's disease. So a good example, I don't know. Do you happen to know um, – who Mr. Beast is. He's he's the most followed person on YouTube. He has like hundreds of millions of followers. He has Crohn's disease. He's been dealing with it. And he said it publicly, by the way, so I feel comfortable saying this. But he's been dealing with it his whole career, and he's like one of the most prolific content producers there's ever been. And there's tons of people. I, I If people are interested in ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, definitely take a look at it. Um, but anyway, so I got that diagnosis. I was very fortunate to get into remission, meaning that medications are uh, controlling my symptoms. I'm yeah, able to live a normal great. life um, in about eight or nine weeks, which on a, that timeline is actually very fast. So I was fortunate in that way. Well, I find out I get into Cornell. At this point, I'm not at all thinking about that anymore because I was just, again, on total cloud nine. I was like, I, I did it. This is awesome. Can't wait. I'm going to get there on campus. The uh, lacrosse season is right away in the spring. Um it never even – technically, I still had to go there and earn my spot. It was basically you have an opportunity to come. Oh, yeah. Like, like we have this spot for you, but you still need to prove that you can take it, right? It was not a guarantee. 
And but I never once didn't look at it like it was a guarantee because in my head I was like I, I won't let them not take me. I was like I know I can do this. Everyone else there is also just human, and whatever it takes, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it. So did in, you uh, did you have a little bit of imposter syndrome? That seems to be a yeah, big thing oh, with the, the Ivies. And, yeah, you know, getting into a school. You're you're a kid from Waukesha, Wisconsin, totally. and you're getting into Cornell University. Yeah, initially, so. On day one, no, and it, but it did set in a little bit later on, and I will get to that because that is definitely a huge part of this. I think I was just so excited to get the opportunity. Um, and, and by the way, I mean, maybe a little bit even on day one because when I think about like graduating my high school class, I wasn't at the top of my high school class. I, I was, you know, maybe in the top 15% or whatever, but all these other people are valedictorian, salutatorian, um, had accomplished things at a younger age that I couldn't. But I basically figured out I can accomplish this. It's going to be a different path than somebody else took, but it's going to be my path. And so that's what I did. Well, this brings us to January of 2015. Um, I arrive on campus, get all moved into my room. My parents kind of very proudly drive back home, ship me off. And my second day there was my first practice with their lacrosse team. And so I go out. It went super well. I had a great great time, performed well. I remember leaving the field. I called uh, my good friend at the time who was kind of also a mentor to me in the sports world. And I distinctly remember calling him and saying, oh, I, this is, I got this. Like, this is going to be fine. I'm supremely confident. Um, well, the next day was my third day on campus. And I show up and the first half of the practice is going well. The second half, we decided to do kind of like a inner squad scrimmage of sorts. Um, well, I was playing defense on uh, one of the guys on the other side who had the ball, who oddly enough is currently – so this guy who was holding the ball when this happened is actually now the head coach of Cornell's lacrosse team oh, a couple ironic, years later. right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, his name's Connor Busek. He's an awesome guy. So um, long story short, um, I end up – getting severely injured on my second practice there, only my third day on campus. And when I say severely injured, what happened to me, um, basically what happened is I was playing defense on somebody. I took a weird step. Um, next thing I know, I'm laying on the ground, and I was yelling, it's broken, it's broken, my leg is broken. And Was it broken? Not exactly. It was unfortunately worse than that. So oh. I did not break my leg. I thought I broke my femur. I actually dislocated my tibia from my femur. Um, which is very rare and worse than most breaks. The good thing about a break, especially a clean break, is you can put a bone back together and support it with metal. They'll use rods and plates. When you actually dislocate joints from each other, it's all soft tissue that's breaking, and so there's no way to really mechanically put that back Mm -hmm. together. It's either getting cadavers from other people to uh, rebuild your ligaments, which I did, Um, or using your own body's tissue to reconstruct it. And the outcomes are usually a lot more bleak. Well, it was, it it all happened so fast. It's funny because some of it now is like a blur. The reason this was so significant though, on top of just the fact that I had this leg injury was with, and this is called a full knee dislocation. So it's not just your kneecap dislocating. It is actually your femur and tibia separating. Well, the reason this is a problem is because um, your femoral artery runs behind your femur And if it's the second, to my knowledge, it's the second largest artery after your jugular. And so if you were to damage your femoral artery, your options are bleed out or lose your leg because there is no saving it. And so it wasn't serious injury. Yeah. And so it wasn't initially clear if I had damaged the artery or not, but there was not like good blood flow through the leg. And so I was actually first taken to Ithaca Hospital, then emergency rushed to Syracuse Hospital, and they just kept telling me and having me sign things saying, you need to sign this in case if we have to do emergency surgery. We need you to sign this. And I'm at this point, you know, pumped with morphine. I'm in shock. There's all these things. And what I didn't know is emergency surgery meant leg amputation because they didn't know had I damaged the artery, you don't have a choice. It is like you lose a leg or you lose your life. Um, I, again, a really unfortunate break turned into a really lucky break. I did not damage the artery, and I was very, very lucky in that way. And I remember waking up the next morning and the doctor coming in and basically saying, oh, you're really lucky. And I'm sitting there kind of like, what do you mean? Like, my, I, like I'm here. I'm not, you know. 
and they explained what the outcome could have been. And there was actually an athlete at the University of Virginia on their football team who earlier that same year did have a leg amputation from an almost identical injury. And they, it wasn't done at that same hospital, but they knew of it and kind of shared that with me. And I like at that point, again, I'm thinking like, wow, how can I be so unlucky and so lucky at the same time? It's so strange. Um, so that was devastating, not just from a physical perspective, but also now I have doctors telling me, hey, you're never going to play lacrosse again. So I get to my dream school. I'm at the dream program. Cornell is a program that has won national championships at the Division One level. I'm the first kid from where I'm from to ever have any type of Division One opportunity, let alone that. And on my second day there, the last 12 years or so of all of that work blows up, basically. Um, I remember – and sorry, I'm getting like a little emotional of, talking about it. It's kind of ironic, right, because here you are, this kid from Waukesha – your mom spearheads this cool thing uh, in yeah. Waukesha that had never been this lacrosse team. You become a lacrosse star. You decide to opt out really your first year in school mm-hmm. to go to a junior college because you're so focused on uh, being in a Division One lacrosse championship. Yeah. You come back home because you have an illness. Yep. And you end up applying to Cornell. They're interviewing you. Your dream has just come true. Mm-hmm. And you have a devastating indis- in- in, uh, injury again. Yeah, on my third day there. Yeah. Bo, what happens next? Yeah, so um, I, I'll never forget the, the doctor who was kind of the first to, like, do – figure out a game plan of how they were going to try to fix this, basically. Um, and he was an awesome doctor. He did great work. But I remember asking him, what is kind of best case scenario for this? Because the problem is like, when people tear an ACL, which is that in itself is sometimes a career-ending injury for athletes. Nowadays, like we have a lot of good surgery and technology. Most people can come back. Well, I didn't just tear my ACL. I tore my ACL, LCL, uh, PCL, meniscus, and IT band. And so they had to put all of that back together. Well, he basically or literally said, I think when it's all said and done, you'll be able to run around with your kids in the yard someday. That was kind of his best case scenario, which for me was like, you you might as well just shoot me. Yeah, my my life is over. This is everything I've lived for for nine years. And that's when that really set set in. And I... I don't know if it was like confident or foolish, but I remember looking him like dead in the face and my parents had that made it back out there at that time because they basically got home and turned around and drove back I'm because sure. by the time they got home, it was this had happened. Um, I remember being like, that's not good enough. Like I'm, I'm going to play again. So I'm going to figure out a way to do it no matter what. I'm going to play again. Um, so I actually tried to stay in school that semester because I did not want to leave Cornell. I had just gotten out there. I was so just like cloud nine of even getting to be there that I tried my parents and I moved into a local hotel in Ithaca for the first basically 40 days we lived out of a one-bedroom hotel with both of my parents Um, I hadn't had I had uh, one surgery done at that point which ended up turning into five total but I had the one surgery done and we were living out of a hotel trying to figure out a way for me to stay in school even though I can't physically be in lectures and also like 2015 yeah we had technology but there wasn't class from home, work from home. Not, that wasn't like there is, not like there is today where everything is virtual, you know, yeah. if they had had the technology back then. Totally. It would have been a little different, but even still, I was still drugged up from doing surgeries and all these things. Yeah. And I just, looking back on it now, I just feel so thankful for my parents and also kind of bad that I, I almost, it's not that I made them do that, but they just like, sorry, I'm like getting a little choked up. They couldn't bear to see how crushed I was. Of course. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. You're going to make me cry. So they were willing to do like whatever it took to salvage what we could. Um, Aren't after, you so happy you have them? I am. What, what great yeah. role models. No, I really am. Um, what a mom. Sorry. Yeah. What a it's mom. It's true. Yeah. And after about, I think it was about 40 days of trying to do that, it just became evident that it's it's not. I can't do it. It's not realistic. Um, so I came back home. So for the second time in a year, I am now back in Waukesha um, at my parents' house. I was not going to school. I took the rest of the semester off. Um, luckily, you know, Cornell honor, they felt awful. 
I mean, the other thing is there is no athletic scholarships in the Ivy League. So even if I had been on the team and even if they had wanted me more than they did, which, like, their version of wanting me was already loose, um, I there is no paying for school and everything. You're still covering it. And so they – Luckily, because I was an athlete and considered a varsity athlete officially, I was able to get my medical expenses and stuff paid for. So that, so if if I was going to have this happen to me, I did it at a really good place because they had the support system to allow this. So I went home, and that was in probably February of 2015. For the next basically nine months, I was in physical therapy five to seven days a week, three hours a day, every single day. Um, I remember – sorry. The, the other thing I want people to take away from the story too is picking up mentors at different stages of your life and and also taking all of the wisdom and knowledge that you can from them but also keeping them around because, you know, I think some yeah. people – a lot of people want mentors but then they, they kind of like throw them by the wayside they once do. they're done with them. And that's also <laughs> something that I, I just don't do and I don't understand why people do but – for anybody who does have a mentor, make sure that like as your life changes and maybe you pick up new mentors, bring the others with you. And so my That's great advice, Bo. Thank you. Yeah. And my so my physical therapist at the time, uh, his name's Matt Gibbons. He actually owns a business out here in Waukesha now, his own business um, um, called Physical. He was incredible. He became kind of my mentor at that stage. And we worked together tirelessly every single day to try to figure out how to fix my leg. And in between that, I had four more surgeries. So I had the initial surgery to put everything back in place. Um, I had more knee scopes and manipulations. And the last part of this that I haven't even mentioned yet is I had a lot of nerve damage from this injury. So my foot, my right foot, was actually paralyzed in one direction after this. So I had what's called a drop foot, which means I can push my foot down and in, but I can't pick up my foot and pull it out. So by that next summer, Matt and I had got to a point where I could stand, but I, I couldn't walk. Like I didn't walk on my own for months and months and months. And finally, we got to the point where I was able to walk somewhat, but I was having to wear this brace that was mechanically lifting my foot for me because I couldn't do it on my own. And I remember and this, by the way, this whole time, I was still thoroughly convinced that I was going to play Division One lacrosse again. Like you, I was like, <laughs> this is definitely happening. Whatever it takes, it doesn't matter. Hope is an important um, thing, though. Yes. And Hope that's, is a very important thing in recovery. Absolutely. And it, had I you not. You have to believe. Had I not believed that, I would not have gone on to accomplish some of the things that I did that I will get to. But that was like so key was I had a goal. It didn't matter what was getting in my way. I was going to figure out how to ha- make it work. Um, so about midway through that summer, 2015, I ended up uh, having to fly down to Houston, Texas because my parents, um, and my mom once again found basically, we found a doctor who was not based out of here. He was based out of, I think Dubai, somewhere in the middle East. And he had effectively invented this nerve decompression surgery that only he has ever done. So I was the sixth or seventh patient that had ever had this surgery that he was going to give me, and he was only willing to do it at this hospital in Houston. And so we flew down to consult with him, ended up scheduling the surgery, um, and I went and did it. And so it wasn't like a dangerous surgery from like a life pers- – like, you know, it's not like it was life-threatening or anything. When you're getting put under, there's always a risk, right? But it wasn't like life-threatening, but – they were going to go in and basically manipulate the nerves manually and it we don't you don't know what the outcome of that's going to be and he had done this i think i was the seventh person so he had done this with six other people for other various nerve injuries it worked for all six so i remember going into this just doing the math you know i'm a math guy well you can't be 100% forever nothing is 100% so i'm terrified going into this thing like he went 6 for 6 what are the odds he goes 7 for 7 but about three or four months following that surgery, all of a sudden one day I can twitch my toes. And I couldn't twitch my toes at all for the previous almost year at that point. And it slowly started coming back. And so I go back to that next semester of school and that whole next year I kind of like was in a team manager position where I was helping with filming and whatever else while I was doing physical therapy to try to come back Oh, I think that's healthy, don't you think? Yeah, I just wanted to be around it. And I I just wasn't ready to give it up yet. And at this point, I still believed it was going to happen. Meanwhile, the coaching staff had basically told me, hey, 
if we need three things for this to ever happen, you need to be medically cleared by a doctor, you need to be cleared by our physical therapist here, and then we need to obviously make the decision as coaches that we want you to do this. Well, basically that following next fall, so I had been at Cornell for a whole year at this point, I come back, I do get medically cleared by a doctor. Because if I'm medically able, they don't have a choice. I do get cleared by physical therapists. So now it comes down to the coaching staff, and honestly, they effectively cut me at that point. You know, they basically sat down and said, well, we think it'll it'll take another year. And I knew that to, to even consider it. And so I knew at that point he doesn't want to break my heart, but, like, it's not going to happen. Um, so another blow. Which, again, was just an unbelievably crushing blow because it was the first time that I realized, like, this isn't going to be – I'm not going to do this, you know. And it's not my fault, but it's just – it happened. Um, I will say that fall – I did participate in an inner squad game and I played and I was healthy and, you know, I walked on the field and I walked off the field, which for me, like did bring the recovery full circle because I did make it back on. But the, you know, competitor in me didn't feel like I didn't really do it. You know, I like did more than the doctor said I was going to be able to, but it's not like I made it all the way back and actually got to like live out that dream. So yeah, I don't know what the blow tally is now, but whatever it is, that was just so crushing at that point too but learning how to navigate that taught me so many life lessons at a young age because I had to I didn't have a choice you know it's not like I didn't want this to happen but this was a situation I was dealt with so yet again I have a decision to make same with the health issue can I look at this as what opportunities do I now have or can I look at this like well my life's over because this was the only thing I ever wanted to do um and I just what does that feel like it like you're what? Okay, you, you're I, finishing. You're finishing the the game that you just got done with. You're walking off the field. It's not a Division One game. Yeah, it's less than. Yeah, in your head. Yeah. What are you, What was, are you thinking? What are you feeling? You're at Cornell. I was super embarrassed, honestly, um, because I just felt like I failed. And what's funny is, um, sorry, I keep getting all choked up. Nobody else in my life who loves me treated it that way, which was awesome. Um, And it was kind of a testament to how you feel is probably not how other people feel about you, um, which was also an important thing to learn. But I was, again, just crushed. Um, But then I was always just thinking, I was kind of in like that bartering stage of grieving where it's like, okay, well, I can't have this. What's the next best thing? What's the next best thing? And um, the next best thing became something completely different. And it ultimately became me then saying, okay, I want to leverage this education opportunity that I have, which by the way, like it's almost like poor little rich boy because, oh great, you don't get to play this division one sport. Well, you got, you get to attend like a premier university in the world. You can do whatever you want with that. And I did not want to waste that, you know? So you have this tremendous opportunity, even though, yeah. So what what happens next? Yeah. With that? So so that is where we kind of start talking about that that social awareness and like social economic awareness that I really started to come into because of just being a student at Cornell. So um, Cornell is a school that is um, kind of remote. It's not. It's like there's there's not like a huge town like a Madison where there's like a huge social scene and bar scene outside of the school itself. So for most of the social activities, you are either on a sports team, in a fraternity or sorority, or you are in, like, other clubs. Like, there's other things going on. But if you want to be in, like, the, I don't know, like, traditional college party social scene that I think most college kids want, even the ones who care about school, which I hope you all care about school, but I'm just saying, I think to some degree everyone wants that. Um, You kind of had to be one of those two things, either involved in Greek life or um, on a sports team. Well, the sports team thing was no longer an option. So I ended up um, joining a fraternity, which there is a lot of people who went to private school, boarding school, whatever. It was not uncommon for someone in that social circle to have literally, and for those who don't know, boarding literally means they were living like in a dorm at their high school. They were not living at home. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of expenses associated with that. It's kind of like a, just an, another socioeconomic class I had never even experienced before. But next thing I know, I am now officially connected to this social circle of people that in so many ways could not be more different than me from like a socioeconomic standpoint. Um, I mean, I was one of very few that I'm aware of guys in our house who went to public school, who 
I only know, I think, two others that were even remotely paying for their own college, which I was. And that's, you know, my parents have given me everything. I have nothing to complain about there. But we just didn't have the means to shell out, you know, what's Cornell, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year to do it. Yeah. And so I was paying I for my own like college. Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, I was taking out student loans and paying for it myself. That wasn't a thing for a lot of these other guys. And so that's when I really started to realize, oh, we're not exactly the same. Like, we might get along and we're interested in a lot of the same things, but um, our backgrounds are just very different. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, I end up having this awesome experience um, with this group of people. They really took me in. They embraced me. I'm still friends with a lot of them to this day. And that brings us then to what should have been my last year at Cornell. It should have been my senior year. Um well, that illness I was talking about earlier that had went away very That's fortunately. Right. Yep, that had very fortunately went away um, prior to the knee injury came roaring back in the in the year that would have been my senior year. It ended up being my junior year. Well, I was um, in and out of colitis flares the entire time. And and by the way, like people don't like talking about going to the bathroom ever. But now, like, like it's just not really socially something people talk about. But now it's like you don't have a choice. Like this is. This is my health. This is my life. And I was trying to finish out my academic career now at this time. And I remember that year I had to go up to every professor that I had and basically explain to them, hey, if I just walk out of your classroom, this is why. And, like, I will be back, but don't be surprised if I just stand up and walk out and it's nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me not wanting to be here. Um, And so that basically happened for that entire school year. That brought us to May of, of that year, May of 2017. Um, I ended up in the hospital again. This time I was there for about 11 days. I had two blood transfusions, and it became apparent that I was actually going to lose my colon, meaning that they were going to do a full colectomy. They were going to remove my entire large intestine, um, which a lot of people didn't even know you can do that. You can. Um, And so I, once again, was taking a medical leave from school because you can't – there was no way to, like, have that procedure done and um, stay in school at the time. And so – Now, I'm once again home. I'm once again taking time away from school. And we realize I'm going to have to basically add the next, could have been semester, I decided full year of school because at this point, all I wanted was a normal year of college. I mean, like more than anything. Well, what people might not realize is when there's two options. When you have a full colectomy, um, you can either have an ostomy bag, which is permanent in some cases, Um, And basically that means you have an appliance that's actually on the outside of your body. You're actually passing um, a stool through your – effectively like where your stomach is. And it's, again, one of those things that a lot of people don't understand. It's not something they want to talk about. It's often perceived as dirty, which is kind of funny because it's actually not. Um, And it's just really not socially like – it's not that it's not accepted. It's not well understood. And so people don't accept things they don't understand. And on top of that, now I have like – these like body image issues, you know, I like lost 70 pounds and now I have this thing that like I want to hide from the world, really. Um, I remember on basically day one of being back, everyone knew that this happened to me. I mean, this is the type of thing that like you don't want it to be out there, but it is like no one. You can't be the guy who has an ostomy bag when you're 21 years old or 22 and not have people talk about it, you know. So I decided what I was going to do is on week one, the first time we had a full meeting with all 70 guys who I was living with in my fraternity, at the end of the meeting they asked, does anybody have anything else they want to talk about? And I said, yeah. And I just popped my shirt off so everyone could see it and was was just like – this is what this looks like. This is how this take functions. The skeleton out yeah. of the closet. Do you Here have any it questions this about it? Now's the time to ask. When these things happen to you that you can't control, you have to just own them. I mean, because I, again, like I have these big lofty goals that I wanted to accomplish, and it's not going to happen if I don't own my circumstances and figure out a way to put a positive spin on it and and move forward. And so, this brings us to now. I'm graduating college. What am I going to do next? Well, I was studying. Um, effectively like Cornell's version of like a law undergraduate degree. It was called industrial and labor relations. Like a third or a half of the students in that program, which is already a small program, generally go on to law school. Well, I realized I did not want to become a lawyer. I was not set up to be a doctor or an engineer. So I did the only other thing that Cornell students do, which is go work on Wall Street. 
And so now I was in this application pool of all of these people who, again, come from this different socioeconomic status than I do. I, I, so you go from Waukesha, Wisconsin to Wall to Street. Wall Street. Yeah. And that process alone was crazy because like I'm in interviews and I'm dropping my resume and, you know, I don't have a parent or an uncle or an older sibling who's a vice president or managing director at Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan. I don't have like my social circle is here in Milwaukee area. My social circle is not New York. And so now I'm trying to convince these already highly selective groups that they should pick like me as opposed to, you know, all these people who have this in some ways the same accolades as me and in others even more because of who they're affiliated with and associated with. And and I will say most of the people who I know that are working in those like high level Wall Street jobs, they're legitimate. They're they're very smart people. Like they will be successful at anything they do, but not all of them. I mean, there's people who are there because of what their last name is. And that is just the reality of I mean, it's reality of Cornell too. There's people who are there because their their family has a building or whatever, you know? Um so I decided that I did not want to work at a major bank. And so I actually didn't even apply to the major banks. And I don't know if that was because I truly didn't want to or because I was afraid of being rejected by them. It's honestly, I think it was a 50-50 at the time, which I almost hate admitting that I was afraid, but I think I was. Like, I wouldn't admit it to myself at the time, but when I look back on it now, I think part of it was I'm a little bit afraid of rejection and I don't want to do the same path that everyone else is doing. And so I started applying directly to hedge funds and asset managers, which in most cases, people who do go to these investment banks often end up working at these um, hedge funds, private equity funds, whatever, down the line anyway. Like, that's the goal for a lot of them. I was trying to look at it like, well, I just want to skip that step altogether and get my foot in the door. So I applied to, like, almost 70 asset managers and hedge funds. And one of them gave me a shot, and I ended up getting the job. So now I'm going to be graduating from school in a few months. I have this, like, dream job that I can't even believe. What's the dream job? What's the title? Yeah, what, so, what are you doing? Yeah, so I was um, an analyst in... Uh, the business development, uh, investor solutions, and capital markets team at CIFC Asset Management, which was um, a management uh, asset management firm that managed institutional debt. Um, they were kind of what they're really known for is called a collateralized loan obligation, which is a very complicated structured debt product. I won't bore people with the fine details of that, although if people do want to reach out and hear about it, I'm more than happy to talk about it. But the long and short of what they do is they manage funds and different types of funds that are holding um, loans and bonds for major institutions. And those are institutions sometimes that you've heard of, like like a, like a Tesla or like a UFC. Um, and some of those loans are a billion dollars. So they're, they're dealing with really large transactions. Um, so is it coming with a pretty gigantic salary for somebody um, right out of college? Yeah. Usually Cornell yeah, and the so, yeah, the compared, kids come out with it's funny. these enormously big salaries. Yeah, right? so it's funny. My brain is kind of poisoned on this front because I see like <laughs> what other people were doing and getting. So yes, is the short answer is yes. For my age and, and the basically having no full-time work experience like any other college kid. I mean, I had internships and stuff, sure. which, yeah, I was, you know, making good money. I got to move to New York City. I had my own studio apartment on the Upper East Side, but I was still dealing with this health issue at the time. I still had the ostomy bag. And if there was one place that I felt like the ostomy bag was even more not accepted than college, <laughs> it was Wall Street. And so I actually just, I decided I'm going to do the exact opposite of what I did last time. It's none of their business. I'm going to function as good or better than everybody else who I'm trying to compete with. And, and not when I say compete with in the workplace, I don't mean like actually competing with my coworkers. I just mean like trying to be a really strong employee because at this point, I want to move up this corporate ladder. I'm thinking, well, I'm going to be an analyst and then I'm going to try to become an associate, then a VP, then a director. Next thing you know, you're running a team. And I thought the exact opposite. I was like, you know what's going to be empowering for me is me doing this without them even knowing that I'm dealing with this. So I didn't tell them. And so you get your lofty job. Yeah. You, you graduate from a lofty school. Yeah. You go through really, I would say, four years of adversity. Yeah. During your college experience. Mm -hmm. You land the dream. Tell me about the disillusion of the dream. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I land. Because what I, I think that's one of the most compelling parts of your whole story is you, you know, you, you. You break out of Wisconsin, and uh, how many people are actually uh, uh, um, 
get into Cornell from Wisconsin on an annual basis? I think it's like three. It's few. Yeah. I don't know the exact number. It is few, it's though, three. for sure. I think they have a 4% or a 3% it, admission It was something rate. like that. Yeah. It, it was low. It really, yeah. And, and then and, you land the dream job and yeah, is and the dream a dream? No. So that's the thing, right? And this is what I was talking about earlier where you can set lofty goals and get to them or maybe not get to them and change your mind. And that's okay. It and is. And so I I worked this job for, you know, that next year. Then I actually go in and have two more surgeries, which is where I had the ostomy undone and everything. And there was, you know, uncertainty associated with that. But to be fair, they were actually very good about that. So that I will always appreciate as well. Um, and But I, I'm working this job. It is what a lot of people say it is in a lot of ways. I mean, you're working an unbelievable amount of hours every week. You are not in control of a whole lot. Um, I want to say that there there were some people, and I'm still in touch with these people to this day, who are amazing people who work on Wall Street. They're unbelievably brilliant, and they do care about people. But that is not everybody. And and I think that can be true. Not of, everybody uh, a lot or not everybody a little? Uh, <laughs> Talk about the value concept. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it depends is always the answer, of course. But what I will say is I learned relatively quickly that I did not have the same values as a lot of these people. Um, with the exception of, again, some of these people I'm so in touch with and I really do enjoy. And I don't want them, if they're listening to this, to feel like I'm talking about them because I'm not. But there were people who I – especially people who maybe were in situations that I thought I wanted to be in someday that I realized, oh, this is what comes with it. Or like, these are the values that I need to have if that's what I want to be. And again, I just, I'm a kid from Waukesha. Like it just wasn't aligned. The reality of that was not aligned with like what, what my values were and what I, I wanted. I think our audience would probably like to hear, without using anybody's name, like a real-life story that occurred on Wall Street that maybe changed your whole attitude about why it wasn't a fit for you. Yeah, I think um, – well, it's a few things. One one piece of it was that I was not getting self-fulfillment out of, like, helping really big institutions at that level. And that's not to say that it's wrong. It's not to say that you're doing anything wrong by helping big companies. But I did not get the same fulfillment that I now get helping individuals and families accomplish something because it's significantly more personal. So like that was a huge that was a huge part of it. The other part was, I mean, there was just, you know, there's people who don't see their kids a whole lot, and 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 I don't even, you know, at this point, I don't have kids. I might never, but. Like just that that value proposition, though, of like maybe not um, investing much in your relationship with your family, maybe putting your job over everything else in your life all of the time, um, being willing to maybe step on others if you have to because it's going to project yourself forward. And that, that happened to me a few times. I mean, there were people who will tell you one thing to your face, but then in practice, they're going to do something completely different because it might end up furthering that or they, they think it's going to further them in their career. So they're willing to do it. Um, also, just realizing that, you know, you in, in that whole world, you are ultimately a number. I mean, that's really that's really it. And I thought I was escaping being just a number by not working for like a huge bank. But you're kind of not. I mean, you get to a certain point and you might be. But when I realized that I am truly just a tool for a lot of these people, it just, it wasn't for me. And, and it, it just wasn't what I wanted kind of out of my life um, and and my experience. Um, so through that soul searching, bringing it full circle, now you're back here, you're a terrific loan officer in Waukesha, you. Wisconsin. How, how do you make the journey home from Wall Street? What What's happening? How's yeah. the journey coming from Wall Street? So, I mean, Cornell to Wall Street to Waukesha? We're back to Waukesha again. Yeah. So the first thing I did when I left New York was I actually made um, what was a frowned upon move uh, for pe most people on Wall Street. And I actually left New York and I moved to Dallas first to work for another asset manager. This one was in the direct lending space, meaning instead of working on these really broad, large deals with a ton of banks and asset managers, they're lending directly to businesses at like still a large scale, but a smaller scale than what I was doing. Well, that was that in itself was very frowned upon by a lot of people because they're looking at me like you have this opportunity to work at this like company that does this incredible work. It's so big. It's so large. Everything's about more dollars. Everything's about, and, and like, you're like, 
I think people were looking at it like you're throwing it away. Well, I was looking at it from the other perspective, like maybe I need to go down in scale to like feel better about what I'm doing. Um, I realized pretty quickly that, and this is, you know, to no fault of any specific individuals down at where I was in Texas, but I just realized really quickly, like things that I thought were maybe like New York problems or situational situational problems were actually just industry problems. And I was going to run into the same thing anywhere. There's going to be this like level of greed from a lot of people that I'm going to kind of feel personally that I don't share. And And I'm not saying greed in the sense of wanting to make money. I mean, I want to make money. That's why I run a business. That's why you run a business. But there in my mind is, um, it was more of like judgment of character of some people and me realizing that that is what I would probably have to be to get where they were. And I'm just not going to do it, you know, and, and it just doesn't feel good. And so I don't want that. Um, and so I got in touch with Augie, who's now my business partner and through my mother, who is also a realtor and, we really hit it off and basically he was like, look, you have the background and beyond on lending. I mean, he was like, I don't know that there is another loan officer anywhere who worked on Wall Street and decided to come back and do this. I would agree. Because it's, it's quite <laughs> frankly frowned upon and it's very against the grain. I mean, people who I used to work for, I, w- I don't know if it's all of them, but I would imagine it's the vast majority are definitely looking at what I'm doing. Like, why would you go from working on these massive deals to working like locally with people and financing their homes? Because you're going from institutional finance to what they refer to as retail finance. And I look at it like I have this incredible experience and wealth of knowledge I was able to collect. I can use all of that to help leverage that for people in the more local community and and give them the best possible service experience and financing or whatever that they won't be able to get anywhere else because no one else has that experience. Um, And it's just funny like how people who I like – really respect, especially intellectually, and I can, like, see so differently on this specific thing. So I have two remaining questions for you then. Yeah. Now that we know your full circle journey, are you happy? Yes. Yeah, I am. I, I would say I am happy, but I am not yet content, and I think that that is, like, Mm. two different things. And I don't, I don't ever want to be content in my work and what I'm doing. And what I mean by that is it's not that I don't want to feel accomplished or proud. I just always, I think it might just be my personality type. I have to have something that I'm working towards because if I don't kind of have that carrot that I set for myself, it's hard for me to get up and and do things, you know, like I I have to be mentally working towards something. Um, I would say that at the end of my time in the hedge fund industry and kind of throughout a lot of it, I went to bed most days dreading waking up the next day. I never go to bed dreading waking up the next day anymore. And so to me, yes, I'm happy, but I'm building. I guess that's a better way to put it. I'm happy, but I'm building, and I'm able to build. I have the freedom to do that, which is um, amazing. And and I do have some things that I'm building right now in this space that I can't completely put out there quite yet, but everyone will be hearing about very soon, and I'm extremely excited about it. I was just going to ask you that. I was. I wanted the audience to know. Yeah. What's in store for Bo Belmer next? Yeah. So, um, what is in store next is, and I'll just. I mean, I, I want to be and my group to be the premier people to go to if you're doing any type of real estate financing for yourself. If you're buying your home, if you're buying an investment property, you want to look at uh, financing for your whole whole portfolio. You want to refinance so that you can use that money to do another investment project that you're trying to do. I want to be the person that everyone wants to go to for those things because they know that on top of the fact that I will give them the best service that they will find, I have the expertise and the understanding to navigate those special situations. Um, And that is especially true for those individuals with more complicated financial situations who maybe work with a wealth advisor or a financial advisor who will advise them on what they should do with their finances but can't actually do the financing piece. I can do the financing piece, and I will also be able to speak their language. I think that most wealth advisors will not find other loan officers who can speak their language and really understand what they're putting together for their client, where I will. 
So, Bo, where can people find you? Yeah, so there's a handful of places to find me. Um, Instagram is a great spot. My handle is at Bowen Belmer. Bo is short for Bowen. It's B-O-W-E-N-B-E-L-M-E-R. I also have a YouTube channel also under Bowen Belmer. And we have a channel for the Opportunity Cost podcast where this will be published um, in pretty much all streaming services that you can find podcasts. It'll be on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I just want to thank everyone in the audience for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Powers, Wisconsin's number one boutique broker. And please give Bo Belmer a call for all your loan needs. He's a terrific young man. I was so impressed with him. So happy to hear your story today and Thank for you. you to share it with everyone. You're a very inspirational person, Bo. Thank you, Suzanne. I really appreciate it. You're going to go far in this industry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Thank you.